Thank you to uh, church, um, not only to those called servants or deacons and deaconesses, but to all who stepped up to serve. Last week, the sermon title was, was given to the church for the church. And one of the application points last week was to challenge you all to find a way where you could give something of yourself. Give of your time, give of your talent, give of your money to the church for the good of the church. And sometimes I put out a challenge and I get to hear a little bit about what happens. This time, I put that out and we had multiple people call into the office this week saying, hey, I want to be available to serve. Is there something you can do? Thankfully, we had just come up with a list of here's a number of things that people could do if they call in and ask how they could serve. And so I'm very grateful for all of the ways that many people stepped up and are serving in new ways even this week. Today's message is called Risk. We're looking at the next passage in Acts. It's Acts chapter 21, so you can turn there in your Bible. Acts 21, 1 to 16. I'm just curious as I get started here today, if, if there were kind of two ends of the spectrum, and knowing that nobody's like totally on one end or the other, but, but knowing that we probably all lean one way or the other. If the two ends are, I'm generally in life a risk taker, or I'm generally in life a play it safer, where do you lean? More towards being a risk taker or more towards being a play it safer? How many of you would say, I lean a little more towards risk taking? That's kind of, that describes me, okay? How many of you would say, I lean a little more towards playing it safe? That's more of us, okay? Relatively cautious church. Here's the reality. In our fallen world, we're all making decisions every day that carry with them some risk. You hear that? We're all making decisions every day that carry with them some risk. So today, you're here. I assume nobody walked here today. You're here because you got out of bed and got in a car. You know that all sorts of dangerous things can happen when you're behind the wheel or sitting in a car. Being in a car is risky. We can do things to mitigate the risk, like maybe you wear your seatbelt. Hopefully, you're not looking at your phone while you're driving, but still, being in a car is a risk. You walked outside, and in the winter, there's always the danger of ice, right? So, so even though, especially now, it seems more dangerous when most of the ice is gone. I was walking out uh, of the high school after a basketball game on Friday night, and it's pretty much all clear, but then there's a patch, and I saw a guy almost go down because he hit that one patch, right? Anytime we walk outside in the winter, we're taking a risk. We mitigate that risk by like walking like little penguins everywhere we go so that hopefully we don't fall when we hit a patch of ice. But you decided, hey, it's worth it to go outside even though there are patches of ice. You decided to take a risk and gather with others. I mean, it's risky because sometimes when you're with other people, it's awkward, right? Like you're, you open yourselves up to awkward moments by just being with other people. Also, uh, Something that's been on our minds a lot over the last couple of years is viruses spread when people gather together, right? Over the last few years, we've had to make all sorts of decisions about what do we do to mitigate the risks that come along with gathering together? I mean, do we get together or not? Do we wear a mask or not? Do we get a vaccine or not? Do we get the booster or not? All of these questions that have uh, probably yielded way too much conversation over the last couple of years remind us of this. We live in a dangerous world where we cannot make a decision that is completely safe with no risk, right? 
I mean, you could have said, like, man, there's icy patches out there, and I could get in a car accident. I'm just going to stay at home. And then you could have had a heart attack in your recliner, right? Or you could say, I'm going to do, do this. I'm going, to, I'm going to stay away from people. I'm going to wear a mask. I'm going to get the vaccine. I'm going to get the booster. And then you end up finding out that you have stage four cancer, right? We live in a dangerous world filled with all kinds of risks. So what do we do when we have to make decisions every day? Do we make decisions based solely on what seems safest? What's the least risky? Do we always just kind of like, well, whatever's whatever's the least risky, that's what I should do? I don't think so. In fact, in today's passage, I think it will become clear that it's right to take risks for the name of the Lord Jesus. It's the argument today. It's right to take risks for the name of the Lord Jesus. Just to Set up the context again. We are in Paul's final or third, well, maybe not final, third missionary journey. And Paul is traveling with a group of representatives who have taken a collection from many churches, as representatives from many churches, and money from many churches. And they're on their way back to Jerusalem to encourage the believers there. It's a trip that will cover many miles. And Paul is saying a lot of goodbyes and emotional goodbyes, lots of prayer that's happening along the way. Last week's passage, we left them in Miletus, where they were together with the Ephesian elders, and it was a very emotional goodbye. We pick it up now today in Acts chapter 21, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 16. If you're able to, would you stand as we read the very word of the Lord? Let me pray first. Uh, Father, I'm thankful for the way that Pastor Nick already prayed. And so I just echo that prayer that even now as your word is open before us and that, that it's open before me, that you would, you would cause me not to speak anything that would not be in accordance with what your word has to say, that, that through our little time together in this, you would help us to not only understand your word more clearly, but to believe it and allow your Holy Spirit to work in us in such a way that we are transformed and molded by your word, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Acts chapter 21, verses 1 to 16, this is the word of the Lord. And when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patara. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. And they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus. And we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea. And we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. 
When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nassan of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Amen. You can be seated. So inside your bulletin, along with the connecting point, uh, which I encourage you to read some other time outside of this, uh, there is a sermon notes page, uh, if that's helpful for you. Also, the life group guide is included there as well. Remember, we left off at the end of chapter 20. That's one of my favorite passages of scripture that we were in last week, powerful, as Paul says goodbye to the Ephesian elders and charges them. And there was a lot of kneeling, praying, weeping, kissing, hugging, and he knew he would never see them again. Now from there, they make some quick day trips. As we open chapter 21, we make some quick day trips. They're kind of like the west side of what is modern day Turkey. And they're on their way to Jerusalem, which is quite a ways away. But it starts out with these little day trips. They would kind of travel for a day along the coast, go into a port, stay there for the night, do the next thing the next day. But we get to verse 2 here in chapter 21, and it says this. It says, And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. At some point, they've got to make a long leg of the journey, and there in verse 2, we hear of them doing it. It says, when we had come in sight of Cyprus, in verse 3, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. So there on the map, uh, what you can maybe see is Miletus is where they left off at the end of chapter 20, and they're going across the Mediterranean Sea all the way to Tyre. That's a 400-mile journey by sea that they were taking. A journey by sea in any day is risky. Not only are there the natural elements that make it risky, kind of like traveling in a car today, but also piracy was a very real threat uh, on the open sea in those days as well. It's a long and dangerous journey. It, 400 miles, like in Iowa, we don't know all that much about sailing uh, in Iowa, right? Um, so I just like, well, I wonder, like, how, how long is a 400-mile voyage? So I just checked this out. Like, if you're getting on a ship in New York City, and you traveled south from New York City, you went around New Jersey, past Delaware and Maryland and Virginia, 400 miles would land you somewhere about halfway down the coast of the state of North Carolina. That's a pretty long journey that Paul and all of these representatives were taking. But God delivers them safely to Tyre, and we're told that they are going to stay there for seven days. That's in verse 4. It says, And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And then this interesting line at the end of verse 4. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. This is interesting. There's fellow disciples who love Paul and love the gospel of Jesus Christ, want to see it advance, but they're telling Paul and his companions, don't go 
to Jerusalem. Driven by the Holy Spirit, they say, to say this. Well, here's the problem. You might just read that like, oh, okay. But do you remember what we saw in chapter 20? Go back to chapter 20. Just flip back one page in your Bible or whatever you do on your phone to get back to that. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. Here's what Paul says. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem. And listen to the language Paul uses. Constrained by the Spirit. Constrained by the Spirit. He can't help it, right? The Spirit is clearly leading Paul to go to Jerusalem. Not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So, here's the problem. Now, by the Spirit, these people are telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Paul was just clearly told by the Spirit, go to Jerusalem. Is the, is the Holy Spirit giving conflicting messages to Paul and to these people? I don't think so. I think what's most likely happening is that the Holy Spirit is telling these people, the same way he's telling Paul, what's going to happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem. What's going to happen to Paul if he goes to Jerusalem? Imprisonment and afflictions await him. And so their conclusion from hearing that from the Holy Spirit is, well, don't go. Like, if you know you're walking into affliction and imprisonment, well, don't go there, right? That, that's their suggestion. That's what they're pleading with Paul to do there in verse 4. But if you just notice, uh, you remember uh, here, Luke is using the first person plural because he's with them. He's one of the representatives with them. So when he says in verse 5, when our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey. Okay? So these people say, by the Spirit, don't go. And what do they do in the very next verse? They go. Okay? Spent seven days there. That's enough time. Let's keep going. Remember, they wanted to get to Jerusalem in time for the day of Pentecost. Paul is constrained by the Holy Spirit. They go, lots more farewells, kneeling, praying together, probably emotional as well. So the longest part of their journey is done. They've made the 400-mile journey by sea all the way from Miletus over to Tyre, but they're not there to Jerusalem yet. If you look at the map, Jerusalem is still a number of miles south by mostly land. They will get there um, down to Jerusalem south of Tyre. So they've taken a risk, a voyage by sea to Tyre. But now they're going to take a risk by sea and by land to Caesarea and Jerusalem. I love it when you are reading something and a character that you thought you might not ever hear from again shows up again. And that's what we get here in verses 7, 8, and 9. Paul and the ship land there in Caesarea. Well, now they've traveled by land as well. They're in Caesarea. And we are introduced again to one of the first deacons. We just introduced to you the deacons and prayed for them today. Do you remember back in Acts chapter 6 when the church was in a spot where they recognized the apostles and the elders? They, they were all taken up with the ministry of the word and prayer. And a number of things needed to be attended to, but they didn't have time. And so they said, find seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom to take care of these things. And so when it says here in verse 8, on the next day we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven. That's what they're referring to. He's one of the first seven deacons in the church. He's one of the seven and they stayed with him. He now lives about 60 miles north of Jerusalem in Caesarea. 
It also tells us an interesting note. In verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. The prophet Joel had prophesied that when the Holy Spirit came, he said, your sons and your daughters will prophesy, right? And so, so that's happening here. But then we don't hear from one of his four daughters. We hear from another prophet named Agabus. Verse 10 says this. By the way, uh, this, is, this is probably a little over 20 years after the last time we heard about Philip. So we heard about Philip being one of the deacons in chapter 6, and then remember Philip met the Ethiopian eunuch reading the book of Isaiah, you know, and then he baptized him right there as the Ethiopian eunuch puts his faith in Jesus. It's been a little over 20 years since then now, okay? And so, so that's where we're landed. Now look at verse 10. It says, while we were staying for many days, we don't know how many days they stayed in Caesarea, but many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt, okay? So Paul's belt, not like a leather belt like the one I'm wearing, but a, a belt that would have kind of uh, held a whole bunch of pieces of clothing together. So a long belt. And he takes it from Paul, and he binds his own hands and feet, it says. And then he says, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. He is getting, this Agabus, this prophet, is getting a word from the Lord, sharing it with Paul, actually acting it out. This is how it's going to go for you. And he does this, pointing out to Paul, this is what the Holy Spirit says is going to happen to you. Sounds accurate, right? Sounds like an accurate prophecy. It's the same thing the Holy Spirit told Paul. You go there, imprisonment and affliction awaits you. But then, interestingly, or maybe not, maybe it's just like it makes sense. Verse 12, when we heard this, this is Luke and all of Paul's friends, when we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. Again, it makes sense. You wonder if at this point Paul is just like starting like, okay, I thought the Holy Spirit was telling me to go to Jerusalem, but now these people tell me not to go. Now I go to a new city and this prophet says, that says it's going to be bad and every, all my friends who love me and care for me say I shouldn't go. I wonder if Paul is maybe wavering a little bit. After all, it doesn't sound like it's going to be safe to go. Like Remember, making decisions, I'm going to take the safe way or the risky way. It certainly doesn't sound like the safe way to go to Jerusalem. It's not like something bad might happen. It's pretty assured. Something bad will happen if you go to Jerusalem. Is it right then to go to Jerusalem? Good friends who love Paul and know how valuable he is, they know that like, how is the gospel going to keep going without Paul? Right? He, he's a key leader. It's kind of like when Patrick Mahomes is sure that he's going to get tackled, his coaches and teammates, knowing how valuable he is to the team, if he sees a linebacker barreling in on him, like, hey, hit the ground, dude. Slide or run out of bounds. But avoid the hit because we know how valuable you are. Right? Same kind of thing. Paul's got good friends who love him and they know how valuable he is. Like, hey, if this is what's happening, if you're going to go there and get beat up and put in prison, we can't afford to lose you. Don't go. Paul cares about his friends. So look at verse 13. Then Paul answered, 
what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I love this. Just the, just the transparency. Paul's just like, you guys, you're breaking my heart. Almost like he's saying, do you think I really want this? Don't you think it'd be better if I like stayed here and we just hung out together? Of course. What are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? He's had emotional goodbye after emotional goodbye. He knows what's coming. Yet listen to the beautiful thing that he says there in verse 13. For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? Don't try to talk me out of this, guys. I am ready. I am ready, he says, not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. For the reputation, for the honor, for the glory of Jesus. And Jesus says, listen, if it takes me suffering and dying to exalt Jesus, bring it on. How do his friends respond to that? Verse 14, it's a good response. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. Don't think they didn't say that without emotion. (laughs) Man, this guy loves Jesus. And they know what they're giving him up to. All right. This is how it's going to end. Then let the will of the Lord be done. And then the last couple of verses just kind of give us the final leg of that 60-mile journey down to Jerusalem. Year is probably A.D. 57 at that point. That's all we're looking at today, but I want to spend some time on some application of this. Because here's what we see at the end. Paul, fixed on the honor and glory of Jesus, avoids the safe way, and chooses deliberately to take a more risky way. Paul chooses to move into suffering for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus. Why would he do that? I think Paul was imitating Christ. As I was studying this this week and looking at Paul, his friends trying to talk him out of going to Jerusalem to face suffering and potential death, That reminded me of a time in the Gospels. Maybe you know what I'm thinking about. In Matthew chapter 16, remember how Peter often says things where kind of like you shake your head like, oh man, Peter, why'd you open your mouth again? But sometimes Peter gets it right. And one of those times is in Matthew chapter 16 where Jesus asks his friends, his disciples, who do you say that I am? And you remember that Peter gets the right answer. He says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And for once, Peter, Peter's right, and Jesus applauds him for it. He says, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, right? You, you got it, Peter. So, I mean, I just imagine Peter being like, hey, <laughs> like finally, right? Like the, the kid who's always getting in trouble and always gets the right answer, he just, he just nailed it. And Jesus applauds him for it. That's Matthew chapter 16. What verse is that? Uh, Verse 16 and 17, right? 
But then do you remember what happens next? In my Bible, you've got to flip the page, but it's not very far. That's verses 16 and 17. In verse 21, it says this. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Jesus' message to his friends is, I'm going to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. Sounds a lot like what Paul is telling his friend. And then here goes Peter again. Verse 22. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. Peter's trying to talk him out of it. Peter loves the Lord. He can't imagine that the Christ, the Son of the living God, is going to be put to death. And so he pleads with him, no, far be it from you, Lord. This will never happen to you. Peter, he's got his sword ready. If I've got to cut off an ear, I'm going to cut off an ear. Let's do this, right? He's going to protect him. But he turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Just imagine Peter's shoulders slumping at that moment after just being puffed up. Hey, he just said, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. And now he looks at me and he says, get behind me, Satan? Why such hard words from Jesus because of this? He says, you are a hindrance to me. You are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he continues, if anyone would come after me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I bought a Bible that doesn't have all the headings right in the middle. Mine puts them all over the side. I did that on purpose because sometimes, sometimes those headings get in the way. Like, oh, this is a separate thing. All this runs together. Peter confessing Jesus is the Christ. Then Peter being called Satan because he doesn't want Jesus to die. And then Jesus saying, if you want to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. If you want to save your life, lose it. If you try to, try to save your life, uh, you're going to lose it. If you want to save your life, then you need to lose your life, right? All these things just run together. So, you see how Paul is imitating Christ? He's got friends who are telling him, no, don't go on to Jerusalem. Take the safe way. Don't risk your life. But, Peter sa- but Paul says, no, I'm not taking the safe way. I'm risking my life for the sake of Jesus' name because that's what followers of Jesus do. Jesus rebuked his friend and went to Jerusalem to suffer and die for us. And in the prequel to the book of Acts, that's Luke's gospel. Remember what Jesus did in the garden? Right before he was arrested, beaten, and crucified? Jesus was praying, and and he even knowing what was coming. He prayed this. Remember what he prayed? Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Jesus knew what he was about to endure. Not only a physical beating at the hands of the Roman guards. Jesus knew that he was about to take on himself our sin and the wrath of the Father that we deserve. And so Jesus, in the garden, prays, Father, Take this cup from me. But you remember how the rest of his prayer goes? Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And God's will is that Jesus would suffer and die. And Jesus willingly suffers and dies for us. That's the gospel. 
Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Do you believe that? Keep it very simple. There's only one way to be saved. Trusting in Jesus, who loved you enough that he would willingly die in our place for our sins. So this account of Paul willingly choosing not to go the safe route, but to head to suffering in Jerusalem, is certainly there to point us to Jesus in the gospel. I don't want to miss that. But I think there's one other clear application. I want to close with that. I started by asking you if you leaned toward taking risks or playing it safe. We have more playing it safe kind of people here in the church this morning. I also tried to make it clear that in our fallen world, there is no completely safe choice. Every choice we make, there's some danger or risk involved with it. So an important question is this. Are you ready to take a risk for the name of Jesus? Are you ready to take a risk for the name of Jesus? Listen, in the past three weeks, I have been so encouraged. I trust that all the time God is working through the preaching of His Word to build up His church in ways that most of the time I probably don't see. But there have been instances in these past three or four weeks where I have so clearly seen the Holy Spirit working in the lives of people in response to the Word of God that have been such an encouragement to me. People confessing secret sin and doing the hard work of turning away from it and toward Jesus. People determining to give more, maybe more money, but more of yourself, willing to give your time in order to serve others. So I ask you another question today. What risk might God be calling you to take? It's all sorts of risky things. Maybe even more particularly, what risk is God calling you to take for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus? Maybe it's a conversation you need to have. Anytime you have a conversation with somebody, especially if like, man, I've been avoiding this conversation, but I think I need to have it. That's risky. It might not go well. But who do you need to talk to? Maybe it's evangelism. Here's a risk that always comes with evangelism. They might think you're nuts. Right? They might not want to hang out with you anymore if you are bold enough to share the gospel. There's a risk that comes with evangelism. But who in your life needs to hear the gospel? What about forgiveness? (laughs) Well, this one's tough. Because if somebody has hurt us, and we're harboring unforgiveness toward them in our heart, and we forgive them, yeah, there's freedom, but we might get hurt again. It's risky. Who in your life needs you to forgive them? Maybe your risk is like a new job. (laughs) Maybe it's like, I don't know if it'll work out. Like, I feel safe and secure here, but maybe God's calling me to something totally different. It's risky. But if God's calling you to do it, maybe you should. Maybe it's looking at the world around us filled with all sorts of challenges and pains and saying, "Uh, I wonder if God's calling me to do something. Maybe it's like, maybe I need to become a foster parent, right? Like there's all sorts of hurt and pain and and maybe, man, that's risky, (laughs) right? 
but who's going to do it? Maybe that's what God's calling you to. So uh, that's just examples. Don't like, hey, you have to choose one of those options. You don't have to choose any of them. I'm just wondering and trust that the Holy Spirit will help apply this to you. Is there a risk I need to take for the sake of the name of Jesus? Here's, here's maybe some, like, like a foundation to put under that. Here's just, I think, a general truth. When we know we're secure, we take risks. You think that's true? When we know we're secure, we take risks. We're more willing to take risks when we know that everything's going to be all right in the end. I think that's what Paul was doing here. I, you know, think about this. Like, it's, it's sledding season right now, right? I'm thinking of a little kid who hasn't done much sledding. And they stand at the top of a hill, and right now there's like this nice crusty coat of like ice and stuff on the hill, and they see kids flying down the hill, and they see trees down at the bottom of the hill, and the kids got really big eyes, like, that looks a little too risky for me. But what happens if dad says, hey bud, would you be okay going down the hill if I got on the sled with you? And dad sits down on the sled, and and wraps his legs around his son, and it's still risky, still might go too fast, he still might hit a tree, but all of a sudden, that little kid who knows that he's secure because dad's there with him is willing to take that risk. When we know that we're secure, we're willing to take risks. When we're secure in Christ and we know that it'll be fine even if we suffer and die, we're willing to take risks. I think that's what was driving Paul. Remember in his letter to the Philippians, Philippians chapter 1, Paul, knowing of his security that he has in Christ, says to them this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or or by death, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul knows of the security that he has in Christ. So he is willing to say, hey, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. I want, I want going ahead with full courage that now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. If that means I go to Jerusalem to suffer affliction and imprisonment and maybe even death, then so be it. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. When we're secure in Christ, we know we'll be fine even if we suffer and die. That's why I often go back to and take us back to Romans chapter 8, which talks about our security over and over again. In Romans chapter 8, verse 1, we're told, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a great way for that chapter to start. And I love the way the chapter ends, where it says, I am sure that neither death nor life Paul is writing this, right? He's sure of this. Maybe you're not sure what happens when you get in a car. Maybe you're not sure what happens if you get sick. Maybe you're not sure what happens if you take a different job. Maybe you're not sure what happens if you say, yes, I'm going to be a foster parent. Maybe you're not sure what happens if you do the work of evangelism. But Paul is sure of this. I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth pretty much covers it, doesn't it? nor anything else in all creation will be able to what? Separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
Paul, having that kind of security that is not just offered to him because he's an apostle, but that kind of security that's offered to all of us who are in Christ, right? There's nothing that can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we are secure in Christ, when we know that we're loved by him and nothing can separate us from his love, then we can take risks for the honor of his name. So, be fitting for us to close by singing of his love for us. Be reminded of that. So we'll do that in a second, but let's pray. God, thank you that Jesus willingly gave up his life for us, dying for our sins in order that we might become secure. I pray that this hope, as it did for Paul and so many others throughout church history, would give us confidence to choose to take risks for the honor of your name. Thank you that we can do that because of the security that we have. The promise, the truth in your word that nothing can separate us from your great love, from the deep, deep love of Jesus. It's all we need and trust. And so we're thankful for that love and I pray that you would make us even more thankful as we sing this song and that you would use the security that we have in Christ to compel and propel us out into a week in which we take risks for the sake of his name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.